0: This year, the elections are critical, as we say every every election, but this time I think even more critical than than ever. We sit in the middle of a pandemic that has already taken 120,000 American lives and will surely take more. Uh, We have to worry about the long term needs of the millions of Americans that are now unemployed. Uh, We are measuring the pain and desperation of the unnecessary and cruel deaths of black men and women at the hands of the police and the necessity of addressing racism in this country. And we start to see the real effects of climate change, among many other urgent issues. So today, we're really excited because we're focusing on the unprecedented political realities we face with two top political strategists who will provide context and detail the strategies in figuring out who will be our next president. And to keep it all together, we have a fantastic moderator, media pioneer, media exec, and media entrepreneur, Tom Rogers. We thank you all so much for being with us today. I'm especially thrilled to welcome you to The Common Good. We've got a lot of great guests on the line, Kate Koplovitz and Alan patrickoff Bernard Schwartz, Pop Republican Ed Cox, thank you so much, and so many others who are very important um, activists um, in, in the Democratic and Republican parties. Um, I've known Doug Schoen for decades. Doug has been one of the most brilliant, influential, democratic campaign consultants for over 30 years. And uh, he's working on elections here for presidents, governors, senators, and of course many election campaigns abroad. He's also widely recognized as one of the co-inventors of overnight polling. He helped to bring Bill Clinton a second term, worked with Mike Bloomberg, Evan Bayh, Tony Blair, three Israeli prime ministers and many of the nation's biggest corporations. He's written a number of books and contributes to the Wall Street Journal and the Washington Post. Rick Tyler is co-founder of Foundry Strategies, a political, strategic, and communications consulting firm. Rick has been advising top Republican leaders for decades. He was a senior member of Senator Ted Cruz's 2016 presidential campaign, and the communications space of that effort, so we saw a lot of him then. He's also served as senior advisor and spokesman to help secure the Republican nomination of Newt Gingrich, and was a key member of the former Speaker of the House Newt Gingrich's team for more than a decade, serving as Gingrich's advisor and spokesman. Rick contributed to a couple of New York Times bestsellers by Gingrich, and of course you've Probably seen him most recently on MSNBC, where he's currently a political analyst. Tom Rogers was kind enough to step in today as our substitute moderator. Tom is a media pioneer, having founded CNBC and MSNBC um, when he was the first president of NBC Cable. He was the CEO of TiVo and is now chairman of Engine Media, a sports and news content and distribution company. He oversaw the FCC and media industry when he served as senior counsel to the House Telecommunications Committee. He's also an editor-at-large at Newsweek. Thank you, three, the three of you, so much for uh, joining us today. We've got an election season, perhaps like no other, so let me hand the conversation over to Tom.
1: Thank you, Patricia, and thank you, as always, for uh, what you do in putting together these uh, very important forums that you've been able to maintain with a great pace throughout the pandemic. Uh, Lots of kudos to you for being able to do that. Uh, Rick, Doug, let's go at it. Uh, First uh, question, I'd like you both to put on the hat of being a candidate advisor. Uh, Rick, let's assume that you are uh, Donald Trump's advisor, um, and uh, Doug, let's assume you're Joe Biden's advisor. Uh, Given where they both are right now in the campaign, uh, take uh, three minutes each to headline the advice you would give um, Rick, Trump, uh, Doug, Biden. Uh, What would you say each have to do in a way that uh, we could summarize it before we go on? Shall I start? Sure, Rick, over to you.
2: So let me first let me first stipulate that um, if I were to give d- advice to Donald Trump, that he would actually listen to advice. So let's just start let's just start there. But if you were listening to my advice, I would tell Donald Trump um, to sort of uh, you know he's got to back off of all this rhetoric. Uh, this election is going to be judged by th- essentially two things, and and they're they're um, inextricably linked together. And and one is the management of the COVID virus and the way it affects people's lives. And the second is the economy, which is exactly how it's affecting people's lives. And we can see now with the resurgence of the COVID virus, um, Wall Street is nervous, business owners are nervous, uh, businesses that have, have not been able to reopen uh, are nervous um, because a resurgence means uh, perhaps even you know, more shutdowns. And the longer this goes on, the harder it is for those jobs to come back. So what I would try to convince Donald Trump of doing is is that he is managing the virus. And I don't know that I'd have him particularly go back to the daily updates, but people do need some sort of assurances on how this uh, virus is being managed. I don't think you're gonna get away with any more that it's just gonna go away like magic. That's just not, that's just not realistic. Uh, it's not gonna happen. Uh, so he's gotta do that. And then he's gotta convince people that the numbers that he did enjoy which were an extraordinary economy He likes to say it's the world's best economy. Of course, every president since Warren Harding could actually say it's the world's best economy. It has been since 1880. We uh, took uh, that first place position from the British. Uh, And he had extraordinary low unemployment rates. And he also had what I would call a a booming stock market. And so all his economic numbers were very good. Now they're terrible. um, And they're not likely to come back. But the only way they're going to come back is if he figures out how to manage this virus and that people understand he's manage, managing the virus. Simultaneous to that, and probably superseding that, he's gotta make sure that people understand, that, you know, that voters understand, he wants them to understand that Biden is just not an alternative, that we can't switch horses now. And not only, not only are we gonna have uh, the, the virus wreaking havoc on the economy, uh, I would advise him to convince people that uh, Joe Biden is gonna wreak havoc on the economy on top of what the COVID virus is already doing.
1: Very good. Doug, over to you. How would you advise Biden at this point? You're on mute, Doug. Uh
0: Uh-oh.
1: Yeah, you're still on mute.
0: I I wonder if he could call in, Greg, or something. Yeah, he can call in. I'll send him the phone number. All right, we're
1: going to give you a phone number, Doug, to call in, and hopefully that'll solve the audio issue. Uh, While we're trying to solve that, uh, Rick, I was going to ask both of you to switch hats now and how you would advise the other candidates. So now you are a political advisor to uh, Joe Biden. What would you
2: tell him? If I were advising Joe Biden, I, I would, um, I, here's what I say lately is, biding your time is not a winning strategy for Joe. And what I mean by that is a lot of people think if Joe Biden is just quiet, and originally he was in his basement, and uh, I, I sort of kidded about getting out of the basement, but I think get, being in the basement was actually a very serious issue. Uh, Biden in the basement is not a good look for a presidential candidate. Um, it, you know, just a simple thing. If you're going to be a if you're going to be a presidential candidate and you're stuck in your home because of quarantine or whatever, be in your kitchen because that's the place that people relate to. That's that's where the family gathers. That's where the cooking is occurs. That's where socialization uh, people socialize together. It's it's all in the kitchen. Be in the kitchen. Um, he has moved out of the basement a little bit, uh, and some people are worried about gaff prone Biden, and he is gaff prone. But there's so much that he and his campaign could do in scripted videos. I mean, Hollywood uh, has had a heck of a run for the last hundred years, uh, making alternative realities or wonderful realities from music, video and, and, and sound and script. And they need to be doing that. And what they need to convince people is, what does a Biden administration look like just juxtaposed to a Trump administration? And it's not good enough that we're just gonna return to normalcy. He's gotta really lay out uh, an agenda of, where we're, of what we're gonna get, get back to and what things are important. He has a lot of opportunities there. There are a lot of things uh, that people are talking about like uh, police reform. Uh, you mentioned the environment, but there, there are a lot of agenda items that he could talk about. He is talking about some of them to be fair, but I think he could do so much more uh, than what he's doing right now.
1: Um, so let's uh, follow up on that a minute. Uh, Given that he could do more, he seems to be doing very well, given the national polls and key state polls, by by doing very little. Would you advise, hey, as long as Trump looks like he's continuing to self-inflict wounds, uh, better to lay low and let that play out as long as possible before uh, trying to grab more spotlight himself?
2: No, I would not advise him to do that. It is true that uh, he, he's ahead on average, about nine, nine percentage points. And as of today, about 14 percentage points uh, nationally. And, and that's important. It's more important to look at the, uh, the individual states, particularly the swing states. And he's also ahead in those states. In fact, Trump is defending states now like Arizona and Iowa, which he, which he won. Um, but never underestimate a $100 million ad buy and what that can do to somebody's reputation. I would admit that it would be very hard to change Joe Biden's, um, uh, to redefine him at this point in his career because he's pretty well established and well known. But Donald Trump would have to convince people uh, that he is just unacceptable and a $100 million ad campaign uh, can do that. And so he has just got to be forward leaning all the time. He's got to use Trump's weaknesses against him. Trump uh, has an ego and he, he doesn't take uh, attacks lightly, and you've got to keep him counterpunching all the time. If you can keep him counterpunching, uh, Donald Trump is apt to say some pretty foolish things, and I think you can get him to continue to say that. But again, I think Biden's got to lay out his vision very strongly for what a Biden administration looks like. Remember, he's not a, gener- he's not a transformational or generational candidate. We're, the Democratic Party hasn't sort of switched generations and moved ahead with an exciting, vibrant candidate who doesn't, who has all kinds of new ideas. Uh, Joe Biden is well-established, he has a well-established record. Not all that record is good. Uh, and so um, he, he, he has really got to lay out a vision that people can repeat and repeat and choose it over what Donald Trump is offering, which so far is pretty meager. Well,
1: let's go back to your Trump advice a minute.
3: This is Doug Schoen, if uh, I can join. (laughs)
0: Yeah, thank
3: you. No, and my apologies. I tried. I'd like to think my political, excuse me, my political abilities exceed my technological abilities (laughs) and may exceed the uh, quality of my voice. But let me try to reply to what Rick was saying. First, First, with a... a,
1: your advice to, uh, to Biden, uh, your...
3: Yeah, I was going to provide my advice to Biden, my answer to Trump, and my rebuttal to Rick, all in three minutes. Okay. So first of all, I'd say my advice to Biden would be keep doing what you're doing. There will come a time in the next month or so, month and a half, he will have to outline positions. I get that. But given the Times poll... The swing states and the utter failure of the Trump campaign, Uh, there's an old rule in politics, if your opponent is self-destructing, let him do it. You don't need to help. And Biden doesn't really need at this point to be uh, a transformative candidate, a bold candidate. He just needs to be basically not Hillary, uh, bland and acceptable and tolerable in the Times poll suggested pretty clearly uh, that uh, the bulk of his vote, certainly the large margin he is enjoying, is because of opposition to Trump rather than support for him. Uh, That raises the question, and I think I agree with Rick on this point, that um, uh, what Trump has to do is make this not a referendum on him, which it is now, but a choice between he and Biden. And if he is in a position that he can make the case that Biden uh, has either over time failed, been wrong on a series of key policy uh, issues or uh, does not have clear programs or has flip-flopped, then I think he can make this a much closer race than it is. It's not a 14-point race. I'm not even sure it's a nine-point race. My own take is that it's probably somewhere between five and seven points, the economist uh, projection was for tomorrow there'd be a six or seven point uh, Trump victory. And I think, um, I'm sorry, apologize, Biden victory. And I think that's about right. Or to put it another way, Biden is in a position where um, I think he cannot gain support at this point. He can only lose support. And I would say this to conclude. Given the results of the primary, the the victories, of insurgents, potentially in Kentucky, and certainly in New York, in congressional races, there is a great opportunity for Trump to not only make the case that Biden has failed and is uh, wrong for the times, but that Biden himself uh, is tied to left-wing policies. Trump has to empathize, Trump has to associate himself with the recovery and not run away from coronavirus in the way that he has. If he keeps doing that, he won't succeed. Let me stop there.
2: Follow
1: up to that. Given the degree of polarization that exists in the country today, how many people do you think, particularly in key swing states, are truly persuadable at this point? How much of the electorate do you think is subject to being able to switch their current view uh, relative to whatever the polls are directionally picking up now?
3: Well, I I think there are two tranches of voters. The first tranche would be those that are independent and independent-leaning Republicans who, for whatever reason, have decided they can't or won't vote for Trump. If there's a nine-point lead uh, in the real clear and 538 averages, that that would be three or four points. So you get down to five or six points. And when you get down to five or six points, uh, those Maybe three or four of those percent are persuadable with a negative campaign or a comparative campaign. Or to put it another way, if Trump is able to make the case that he is doing the best he can, acknowledging the problems that exist, and make the case that Biden is unacceptable or worse, then I think we could be in a very close race. But absent the Republicans and independents coming home and Trump doing that, uh, this is Biden's race to win.
1: And Rick, the advice you gave uh, Trump was really all about changing his current course when it comes to the pandemic and the implications for the economy. There certainly hasn't been any evidence uh, that he's prepared to do that. There's been a lot of evidence that in some key states where we're seeing surges, like Texas, uh, Republican governors are moving away from the way he has decided to handle the pandemic, uh, given the uh, potential uh, health and financial crisis they're facing. Do you see any likelihood at all that Trump would listen to advice that he's got to make a major pivot here? Certainly there hasn't been any evidence of it yet.
2: As far as I know, Trump doesn't listen to much advice and he really keeps his, his own counsel and that, frankly, has not served him well. I look. I look at the pandemic numbers um, daily, many times a day. And at the end of last month on MSNBC, I predicted that this pandemic was going to hit um, red states, uh, in a political, and have a political outcome. And I took a lot of criticism for that. I didn't. I don't wish for it to hit red states. It's just. It's just. It's just data. It's like. It's like watching a wrecking ball swing back toward the skyscraper and once it starts heading your way you don't have to wonder whether it's going to hit the building it's going to hit the building and the pandemic is going to hit uh, as it is now texas uh, florida arizona uh michigan uh, missouri it's hitting states that matter politically and these governors have a real problem because if this if the pandemic begins to hit their their states and remember, a lot of these states they, they weren't that affected, so they weren't really all that as much affected economically. They are going to be affected economically, and they're going to want to do something about it. Uh, they're not going to buy into this magic pill that it will go away or or take some uh, drug uh, that's been uh, that's dangerous according to the FDA. Uh, they're going to they're going to say we are going to have to hunker down and and fix this. And um, some of the Republican governors are doing that. I think it was a um, uh, I can't remember the state that is now moving the mask, which is a red, a red state. Florida is not moving the mask, but that's it. I just think that's a huge mistake uh, because we need to follow the. And this is what I liken it to. Um, people say, people often say, you know, this is driving a car is dangerous. Yes, it is. Driving a car is very dangerous, but we don't drive in the left side of the road. We don't exceed, exceed the speed limit. We don't run stop signs. Uh, we follow the rules. We use our directionals. We do all the things to keep us safe. That's what you do with the pandemic. That's what the government is going to be looking to do, so they don't suffer the economic consequences. And I don't have a lot of hope for Trump to get around to get through this. I mean, because he he just ha- he has no credibility on the issue. He uh, obliterated that during his daily press briefings, which were a unmitigated disaster. Um, so I'm not sure he can grab hold of that again. If he were willing to let go of the reins and let professional uh, healthcare uh, people, if uh, adv- advise the country on how to handle this, and people got the sense that we were getting through it because we had competent leadership, we might benefit from that. Uh, but I think that's how I'm going like.
1: That's a huge if. It's uh, a
2: huge-
1: so back to you, Doug, uh, in your uh, pollster extraordinaire hat. Uh, you you suggested that there's 5% of that vote which might be persuadable. Uh, I don't see a lot going out the, on out there that, Suggests that Trump is trying to persuade anybody of anything. He seems to be playing hard and harder every day to his base. Are there enough non-college educated white men out there in uh, Wisconsin and a few other states for that strategy, if he continues to pound that strategy, to uh, really be an answer for how he can turn this around and pull that out?
3: Well, l- let me take the question on three ways. Uh, first, I suggested there were two tranches of persuadables. The Republicans and Independents who have drifted away from him, I think they will come back. Uh, I think uh, uh, their proclivities and inclination is to, be, uh, to vote Republican, and I think they will return. So that group, uh, to get it from 10 down to 5 or 6, I think, that's uh, readily uh, apparent that he can, in fact, do that. The second part, can he get the next 3 4 5% to shift? Boy, I, I agree with the premise of the question, Tom. I don't think, given current circumstances, he will. And I think Rick made a very good point. I'm down here uh, improbably enough in southwest Florida. And between DeSantis and Trump, there is no one wearing a mask, no one distancing, and it's no surprise to me to see that younger people are getting the virus and that there is no willingness to do any sort of mid-course correction down here, much to the Republicans, I think, uh, uh, failings. Uh, you asked about Wisconsin, the Marquette poll came out yesterday showing, I think, an eight-point uh, Biden lead up from a three-point lead, and they said it was the first time there'd been a fundamental change in that state. So as we sit here today, the the clear one-word answer to your question is no, but politics has a way of making people focus on things that they uh, typically don't. And while I agree that all the evidence suggests that Rick is correct, nonetheless, with Trump staring potential defeat in its face, with him seeing a Kentucky primary, where, uh, I'm sorry, not a Kentucky, I think it was a North Carolina primary, where Mark Meadows' hand-picked replacement went down to defeat to a 24-year-old. I think that uh, the Republicans either will have to change course, or if they don't change course, will face a historic level defeat like the type the Democrats face. In 1980, and the Democrats faced faced in 2010. Uh,
1: I wonder if you both agree. If uh, Rick, starting with you, if Biden pulls out either Wisconsin or Arizona, do you think he wins the election?
2: Um, Yeah, I mean, likely. I mean, those states have traditionally. Those states have tradition. Wisconsin has belonged to the Democrats for a long time, so it would return, it would return to the Democrats. Trump winning it was sort, of the, uh, was sort of the anomaly, which is why no one predicted Trump would win, because if you looked at the national polls, they were right. Hillary would win a plurality. She did. Um, but no one w- predicted that he would run the table, which he did. Uh, he would essentially have to run the table again. Uh, so if he's, So if he loses states like Wisconsin, there are st- still ways he can win. If he loses Florida, it's over, right? There's, it, that's a very difficult state uh, to make up. If he loses the uh, Wisconsin uh, and Pennsylvania or Wisconsin and Michigan, uh, very difficult for him to find a, a, the combination of states to give him the winning. So yeah, as a bellwether, yeah. I think if he loses those states, he's probably headed for defeat.
1: Uh, Doug, let me just refine the question a little bit uh, for you. And um, my, my thinking is that uh, given how uh, Michigan and Pennsylvania are currently polling and how suburban women look like they have uh, pulled away from Trump at, uh, at such numbers that it would be very hard to see how the suburbs of Philadelphia, Pittsburgh, Detroit uh, would uh, end up being able to deliver either of those states back unless he uh, miraculously uh, does turn out more uh, non-college educated white men than uh, uh, is foreseeable, uh, that uh, the election really could come down to uh, Wisconsin, uh, where uh, if uh, Trump uh, were to lose Michigan and Pennsylvania and everything else remained the same, um, uh, whoever wins Wisconsin uh, wins the election. And if ha- Trump held Wisconsin, he'd win by one or two electoral votes. Um, the voter suppression issues in Wisconsin have been uh, uh, well publicized. Uh, how do you see the combination of the importance of that state with uh, voter suppression being the tactic of choice for the Republicans to, uh, to, to deal with that state playing out?
3: Yeah, I, I, I think it's going to be very, very difficult to uh, foresee a set of circumstances where Trump is able to lose states that he would otherwise have won, and then somehow, because of voter suppression, win uh, Wisconsin. I I think these elections uh, of this type tend to go uh, with a tide. I mean, there was a clear tide uh, outside of the East and West Coast to Donald Trump last time. What we're seeing now is a profound tide that is much bigger to Biden than just the East and West Coast. And I don't have any sense that we're going to get Uh, an election that would be as uh, necessarily artful as the one you're describing, especially in light of what I saw from the uh, Marquette Law School poll yesterday, which reflected very broadly the national trends that we're uh, seeing in virtually every public poll. So my answer to your question, Tom, would be not very likely. I I tend to agree with you based
1: on a... uh fact I saw today that uh, uh, either of you might react to, which is that when it came to mail-in ballot registration, people who have registered that they want to vote by mail-in for November, uh, the Democrats are leading the Republicans by 1.4 million to 1.1 million or a 300,000 mail-in ballot advantage in Wisconsin. Uh, Hillary Clinton, uh, 2016, I think the Democrats had about an 8,000 registered mail-in ballot lead, ultimately, in the end. Uh, That would suggest that whatever they're trying to do, uh, mail-in ballot voting with that kind of margin for the Democrats, is uh, suppression is going to be a hard basis to win on. Um, I don't know if any of you, uh, either of you, have seen data from other states that uh, suggest anything along those lines.
3: Well, I, I think that there is an enthusiasm issue that uh, will play out more generally. Uh, and right now, with the rally and its failure, which um, I think was a lot more than Democratic uh, dirty tricks, the defeat, uh, as I referenced of Meadows' handpicked candidate, the Republicans are the ones suffering from a enthusiasm gap really in the last month or so and i think the democrats are increasingly becoming emboldened and i I, rick i say that without trying to uh, be too uh, uh, pro-democrat or too biased in my assessment do you think i'm right or am i overstating it i think
2: you're right look if you look at the Tulsa, Oklahoma was cataclysmic for Trump. Um, and you're absolutely right. Dirty Tricks couldn't have done, done that because even if the Democrats tried to flood the, the signups, presumably there would have been enough Trump supporters to still fill the stadium and the overflow. would just would have made more people. There was no replacement people. They're going to let the first people in that get there. That was their whole plan. The rest was all data and registration. But the data we got out of it was that Trump can't generate, um, he can't generate enough enthusiasm. In fact, I, I envisioned the strategy meeting that led to that Tulsa rally, and it probably went like this. Trump would have said to his advisors, um, where are we gonna find people stupid enough to go to a rally during a pandemic? And probably someone you know, smart like Jason Miller or Jared who said, um, I think I know just the place. Uh, if you can't turn out uh, and get enthusiasm for people in Oklahoma, uh, Oklahoma being the reddest of red, red States. I don't know that it has a rival in May, but it's, it's up at the top. Um, your campaign's in real trouble. Um, and he, he didn't have, he didn't have a lot of enthusiasm there. And it speaks to two things, lack of enthusiasm for the campaign and to the degree to which his own supporters are taking the pandemic seriously.
1: So Rick, uh, with your, uh, Trump advisor hat back on, uh, enormous, uh, gap with, uh, uh, women, including uh, white women, between Trump and Biden at this point. Do you advise him to uh, dump Mike Pence and take Nikki Haley as his uh, VP?
2: That's a great question. Um, I've, I've never been one to, I mean, I know we play the vice presidential parlor game, and it's a lot of fun. I, I personally don't think it, the vice president pickup pick up really amounts to actually very much. So I don't think switching horses is really I think it would do more damage to Trump probably than good. Um, so uh, he, is, he is bleeding uh, white suburban women, uh, but he, he has just done nothing to go beyond his base since he became elected. In fact, I don't know if Doug agrees with this, but if, if you looked at Donald Trump and you were to say, what are all the things we should do to make absolutely positively sure we lose this election? Trump is doing them.
3: Doug? Um, I, 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 would, I would certainly say, in answer, Rick, to your point, that of the 10-point margin or thereabouts, seven to eight points come from self-inflicted wounds that Trump has created for himself. So that's probably a, uh, a long-winded way of saying yes. I'll take the other side, though, of the Nikki Haley question. If I were Trump, I'd say, look, we got to roll the dice. Mike Pence brings me nothing except uh, sort of mindless loyalty. He's uh, provided whatever benefit he's going to provide. He's a loyal soldier. We'll make him a senior cabinet officer in the reelect. Um, and uh, bottom line, we need Nikki Haley. I've got to shake things up and i got to change things. But that's the way I think it is. Rich, right, it's not how Donald Trump thinks, and I think the chance that he does it now is about zero, and the chance that it would shake things up and give him a fresh start, yeah,
1: you know, 50-50. So let me ask you, as a, Doug, as a Biden advisor, uh, you, uh, do, does he have to pick a black woman at this point, and if you're going to pick a black woman as your running mate, uh, do you uh, make sure she's been nationally vetted to make sure that uh, you don't have any surprises with that uh, pick? And does that lead you to say Kamala Harris is uh, the likely VP uh, choice?
3: Well, let, let me put it the way I would put it and I'll, I'll, I'll answer yes. Uh, I, I, it is, given the role that Jim Clyburn and African Americans played in nominating Joe Biden, I would be hard-pressed to think of a situation and a set of circumstances that would not uh, militate in favor of uh, Trump—I'm sorry, of Biden picking a qualified African-American to be his running mate, given that there is a substantial chance that I think even Biden and his most ardent supporters would acknowledge that he will not be able to potentially— finish his term, certainly not serve two terms, I think that that becomes an even stronger uh, requirement that he have a qualified nominee, and as I think about it, the most qualified African-American woman that I can think of is Kamala Harris, so that's why I reach yes.
1: Well,
0: I hope we have a few minutes for Q&A, Tom.
1: Okay, well, you've got a better view of... uh who's got their hands up, I think, than I do. So uh, we've Patric- got
0: We've got a few hands up, and then um, uh, hopefully we'll get uh, answers from both Rick and, and Doug. You guys have been phenomenal. So Kay Koplovitz, can we start with you, please? Yes, I, I was really along the line of voter suppression because I, I do come from Wisconsin originally, and it's uh, very severe in a state like that, and also in uh, you know, Georgia, but other states as well. And especially with the voter by mail, with all of uh, Trump's attacks on uh, mail voting, even though he mails in his vote, um, you know, what can Trump do to suppress vote in mail? And will the count be in question um, on the day of the election because of, you know, a lag in counting vote in mail? I I kind of wrapped that all up and what can, actually do to suppress voters uh, in the
3: selection? Sure. Yeah, let, let me start on I'll start on this one and perhaps take a different tone than I did initially. I don't think it's going to work, but there are a number of dynamics. First, he can get in swing states where there are Republican secretaries of state, as we saw in the Georgia gubernatorial. He can lean on secretaries of state in swing states to do everything possible to try to purge people from the roles legally or not legally. And I think given the way he plays the game and the way he's been talking, the man is not subtle, and I think he will try to do that. I think it's also the case, Kay, to your question, that whatever happens, if he loses swing states narrowly or even not so narrowly, he will cry foul. And I think that if he loses within a couple of points in a number of swing states, he will say that there were tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of illegal uh, votes cast. So I think the Democrats are gonna have to be ever vigilant about this and make sure that every ballot gets counted and it is going to take a level of scrutiny and follow through that we probably never had in American politics. And I think for those reasons, and I'm sure others that uh, uh, you all can cite, uh, this is going to be an unprecedented issue and challenge for our electoral system and its credibility.
1: Uh, Rick, um, since uh, you have the tag of uh, being the uh, person closest to Republican campaigns here, uh, how much do you think... uh, voter suppression as an ongoing tactic is uh, really gonna play a role here. Obviously in Wisconsin with the Supreme Court uh, race, uh, that was a desperate attempt to uh, win it on the basis of uh, uh, suppression and it backfired by motivating a hell of a lot of Democrats to come out and vote and gave the race to the Democrats.
2: I think it'll be a huge issue and I do think uh, that the Trump uh, campaign team will try to do as much as they can uh, to um, limit access to voting uh, by making sure they're not polling places over. Let me tell you what I think the Democrats should do right now, and they have to do it at the outset, because Doug mentioned diligence, and I think that's absolutely right. But the Democrats need a huge campaign. They, They normally probably shouldn't have to do this, but they have to do it. They have to make sure that every Democrat understands how to go and check their registration to make sure that they are on the rolls and have secured for themselves their right to vote before they go and vote. In other words, don't. Don't leave this to chance. Don't guess. Don't think you're on the rolls and then get there and find out you're not. Check today, check the month before, check the week before, check the day before, uh, but keep checking and checking and checking to make sure you are absolutely on those rolls uh, and that your vote is going to count. You've got to do that uh, because if you don't, uh, that's when they they can uh, uh, do all these shenanigans. I also agree with Douglas, if this is a close race, I don't think it's going to be actually, uh, and then it'll just be more laughable when Donald Trump says it's all fraud. But if it is a close race, we will have a real problem and it will undermine our democracy and I think it's very dangerous.
1: And to your list of things voters shouldn't do is accept a provisional ballot, because that's a, a very good way to make sure that uh, somebody tells you to vote, they put it away and it never ends up as uh, part of the count. Patricia, you want to call? We've them?
0: got we've got a few more questions. Hopefully, we can get to uh, a, a number. So please keep your questions brief. Uh, Morley Klausner, you're next.
3: I I wanted to know what effect that you uh, you
0: think the conventions have on the race, because now that uh, Biden's pretty much going to do a virtual convention, and we know what Trump's doing in Jacksonville. What do you think the effect of that, if
2: any, um, there is on the race?
3: This is Doug. Let me be quick in the interest of time. I don't think the answer is much. It might help Trump get a few of the uh, Republicans who've defected back, but that's about it. I don't think it's going to do much for him. And I don't think the Democratic Convention is going to do much at all. Rick?
2: Yeah. The, look, the conventions are, are just a three-day paid scripted television program. No real decisions actually happen there. So it's just free media. So whichever campaign uh, makes the best use and is the most creative of how to use that time and capture the American attention, it'll have marginal effect. Uh, but that's, that's about it.
1: I, I think your original advice to Biden that they do more by way of scripted videos with some entertainment value to them. The more they uh, make their convention virtual with good use of narrative videos with that kind of approach, I think they can do an awful lot with the, uh, with, uh, the convention, even if it is virtual. Uh, Patricia, you wanna call on somebody else? Uh,
0: yes, let's do Jim Ferrari and then Karen Turner, real quick, guys. James?
1: James, if you're on mute, we can't hear you.
0: Karen, are you ready? I'm ready. There's James. There's James. Oh, we can't hear you, James. uh, Sorry. Karen, you want to go ahead? Sure. Um, Quick question Um, What can we do, or which organization can we join to help ensure that there are enough polling locations, especially in urban areas? and that they are functioning properly. What do we do now? What do you recommend?
3: You you know, that's a good question, and I'll, I'll take a limited amount of time and say, this is a new one on me with the consolidation of polling places. But to Kay's question, as vexatious a problem as voter suppression is, going from 15 polling places to one polling place is bound to cause problems on election day for the Democrats.
1: I, w- I would just offer uh, Stacey Abrams' organization, which I don't know the name of, which is not only focused nationally, but particularly in Georgia, where there are two Senate races. And obviously, uh, what uh, what she suffered in terms of her race by way of suppression is uh, very uh, schooled in the tactics that could be used here in terms of depriving people of vote. It's a great place to check in with. Thank you. Sure.
0: We've got uh, Laura Quig and um, Cheryl Douglas. Laura, you go first. Make it snappy, if you can. Hi. Um, I was wondering what you think the effect of the immigration um, plays that Trump is making now uh, with the H-1B visas uh, and I mean, border walls, all old, but the um, the H-1B visas uh, might have an effect on the race. Rick.
2: Um, look, that's a core issue for Trump and it revs up his base. It's a revenue for his base. Uh, but, you no, know, he has the anti-immigrant vote. I, I, don't, know, I don't know what more he's really going to get out of that other than to assure his people, the anti-immigrant vote, will turn out. Uh,
3: I agree. The, the, this is not a time where people are focusing on immigration as a broad electoral issue. He would do better to talk about systemic racism and employment than he would closing the borders.
1: Tricia, any more?
0: Uh, Cheryl Douglas, are you still with us?
2: So I think- can you hear
3: me?
0: Yes, now we can.
3: Okay, I would like for you to speak to um, Susan Rice as a VP pick. I know you said that Kamala Harris was, was very- yeah qualified, but what, is your, what are your thoughts on Susan Rice, She's an excellent Stanford graduate? Yeah, no, look, Susan Rice is a brilliant woman, and her foreign policy experience certainly puts her among the, quali- the someone very qualified. There are two issues I see. First, some questions about Benghazi, which I think would allow for a negative campaign against, uh, her and uh, by extension, Biden, and second, her lack of domestic experience.
2: Thank you.
0: Well, that's about all we have time for, guys. I thank you so much. I just want to remind you we have uh, a terrific uh, speakers coming up, but Doug and Rick, that was phenomenal. Tom, you were fantastic. Thanks,
2: Tom. Um,
0: thank you so much. I hope thank, you, have thank you. Thank you all,
3: and my apologies. For my technological
0: woes. Well, you got it all figured out, so thank you so much.
2: Thank you. you. Please come back,
0: everybody. We've got uh, Governor Larry Hogan uh, with Secretary Jay Johnson on July 2nd. Neil Katyal with Kate Koplovitz, which will be fascinating on um, voter suppression. Sarah Longwell, um, who's with the Republicans for Rule of Law and is uh, Executive Director of Defending Democracy Together. She's been an anti-Trumper since 2016, a prominent Republican. So That'd be very interesting. So, um, and of course, Tom Rogers is gonna come back and talk about media in this election. Um, so please come back. Thank you so much, Tom. Uh, that was terrific. Um, so we didn't get a chance to get to everybody. I'm. F- Glad Fred Hochberg was with us, former uh, president of the XM Bank, and a lot of other terrific um, people. So, thank you. Please come back.
2: Thank you. See you again Thank you. you. Thank you. Yep. Thank
3: you. Thank you.